Well, today is officially the first day of summer. <laughs> right as we speak, the Daytona 500 is occurring. That marks the beginning of summer. Just in case you sit down. <laughs> I do have my mind here, in spite of the fact that I have a machine watching the race for me who's going to tell me the whole story later today. So don't tell me what's going on if you're watching it. Yeah, to me... Um, Racing season marks the beginning of summer, so. Don't you all love car racing? You're not car race fans? Yeah. Proverbs 20. Today's the 20th. The Lord has determined our path. How then can anyone understand the direction his own life is taking? Hmm. I love the Proverbs. They just, you know, they make you do that. They make you go, hmm. So last week, we spent our time um, kind of dismantling the concept that good people go to heaven. So if you weren't here last week, I encourage you to to either get online or get on on the website and and listen to the message because we concluded that that, uh, it's pretty common for people who feel like there are lots of different pathways to heaven. There's a common philosophy among them all that that basically says that good people go to heaven. And we spent quite a bit of time on that last week trying to really interpret that and find out, is it really true? We, we've concluded that it really isn't true. And the reason is that we, for lots of reasons, one is that we don't really know what good is. I mean, we all have our own idea. We would never come to an agreement on what good is. In fact, since we can't agree on it, there's really no clear definition of what good is. And if that's the requirement to get into heaven, it, whoever decides what good is has to tell us what good would be. And not only that, we've got to know how much good we've got to be good, right? I mean, like, is 50, 50% good enough? 70%? We examined all of that. And we found out, as we simply by looking at scriptures, too, that Jesus didn't teach that good people go to heaven. heaven. In fact, he, he showed that the best of the best weren't good enough and that the worst of the worst were forgiven. Jesus taught not that good people go to heaven, but that forgiven people go to heaven. And uh, that's, that's, you know, kind of hard for the world to buy into. It's kind of hard because it just seems so awfully narrow. And, um, you know, that question about that narrowness raises a couple of other really good questions, and we're going to talk about those today. What about all those people who never hear about Jesus? It just seems so unfair. So that's the second question. Is it, is it really fair? Is Christianity really fair? And that's what I want to wade into today. I think as we explore the second question, is it really fair? We're going to get good answers to the first question about what happens to all those people. And, uh, you know, our culture loves to, loves to really honor the concept of fairness. And, you know, we just, we just like to parade it almost, like we're going to try and be fair. The, 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 the whole concept behind the idea of being politically correct is an attempt to be fair. It's an attempt to not offend anybody. It's an attempt to somehow find this place that doesn't really exist in our, it really doesn't exist that, that if we walk down a certain pathway, somebody's not going to be offended because we want to try to be fair to everybody. We assign moral value to fairness. Things that are fair are moral. Things that aren't fair are immoral. We don't necessarily say it that way, but the problem is that we so highly value individual perspective in our society. We so highly value it that we honor everybody's perspective about what fair is. So we can have an equal number of ideas about what's fair as we do about what's good. Kind of paints us back into that same corner. We can't always define what fair is, but we know it when we see it. You know, we see something, we go, we can quickly make an assessment, say, I don't know how fair that is. 
And, you know, we can get a little bit double-minded about fairness. We, we, our attempt to be fair all the time paints us into corners that we never think we're going to get into, but we do. Here's an example. Um, I was talking with someone about their experience being on a jury. This happened in Thurston County. It's really warm in here. Can we, can we, I think the system's not, is it just me? It's always just me. I'm always just too warm up here. Um, you know, the, um, um, the, the, the courts in Thurston County, and so this person was talking with me after they came through a, a, a court experience. Now, I don't want to, it's an inflammatory subject, and I don't want you to get lost too much with me on the subject, but it's going to evoke a little bit of emotion for you. The, gives a criminal case against a man who is being charged with molesting a boy. And what's a jury? 11 or 12 people? 12, I think. And, um, and so whoever had that number, thank you for that. Um, so you need to pretty much be in agreement when you find somebody guilty. And the standards are pretty high because we want to be fair. We really want to be fair to the person who's been charged. We don't want anybody who's, who's innocent to ever pay the price for something that they're not responsible for. So in fairness, we try to go way to the end of the spectrum to make sure that we don't violate that, that idea that we would ever want anybody to pay a price for something. They didn't do it. They didn't do so here's this case, and it, and it runs the gamut. If you've ever been selected for jury, um, I've never been selected. I think the Lord doesn't want me to do it or something. I don't know. But, but, but in this case, every juror was given a survey, and uh, this person who was on the jury tells me, t- told me about all this. Every person was given a survey and asked all kinds of questions about their background, including had they had any exposure or personal experience with the, the, the issue of the 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 trial, and so forth. And if your questions seemed to, to make you not be objective enough, then they strike you from the jury. They, they don't come and hit you. <laughs> I'm sorry, you're not on a... You know, they don't do that. They just say, um, not, not this one. And so, so they ended up with 12 people who apparently met, fil- met the filtering process. They went through the whole case. The jury was deadlocked 11 to 1. 11 to 1. And the one who couldn't agree with the rest, really didn't agree with anything. All through the deliberations, this one jurist just kind of curled up and didn't, didn't talk with other people. Couldn't, couldn't bring, I'll assign gender for the sake of uh, making this easy, couldn't bring, bring himself to conclude guilty or innocent. All through this deliberation, everybody else was agreeing, everybody was clear, this guy was guilty. But this one person just could not reach the conclusion, just couldn't get there from here. Couldn't seem to, to talk about the subject, couldn't seem to deal with the issues involved. It was too hard, too traumatic. Don't know what was going on in that person's soul. But through a day and a half of deliberations, they tried, they tried, they tried, they tried. When they get all done, the judge basically says, okay, we're going to have to rule a mistrial here. The prosecutor will have to decide whether they're going to do this again or not. And so the person was not convicted. Now, what's typical, at least in Thurston County, is after everything's said and done, the attorneys will show up with the jury privately, and they'll say, okay, you can ask any question. Now that the case is over, if you want to ask us questions, ask us questions. And they'll answer your questions. Stuff that they they wouldn't tell the jury during the trial because the judge would say it's inadmissible or maybe it would inflame issues, would make things unfair. Ask me anything. Well, the kinds of questions that came up were about this, this person's background who had been charged. This was the third time. 
This particular person had been convicted twice of molesting children before. Now, that was the emotional bump I told you was coming, right? Did you feel that? (laughs) Okay. Because in fairness to the person, I don't know how objective I can be if I'm trying to assess in a trial if this guy did this thing, if I already know he's done it twice before, and especially if the it really offends me. I mean, if it's one of the worst things for me to deal with in my heart. So I can see why the judge would not let the jury know that this is the third time around the the mountain. Now, okay, just just to get you back with me, I'll tell you that the the prosecutor decided to to bring it to trial again and the next time the person was convicted, okay? So fairness eventually seemed to balance out there. But we we go to great, great extents as a society trying to find what's fair. We really push hard to try to find what's fair. And we, and, and we do the best we can, but we don't do all that good a lot of times. Don't you agree? You ever get a speeding ticket you didn't deserve? <laughs> the answer to that's no, because you might not have deserved it then, but I'm sure you deserved it sometime. <laughs> that's how it works for me anyway. Okay, so... The thing is this, that when we encounter something, what's common in our society, when we encounter something that we really don't think is unfair, we end up, we kind of, we put it in a Ziploc container and we go, unfair. I think I just won't have anything to do with that. I'll just not believe it. So we say, I don't believe in that because it's not fair. That's just kind of the the attitude. And so the question comes up in the world, is Christianity really fair? You've you've encountered it. You you bump into people every day whose position is ambivalent towards Christ because they've decided there's something unfair. Now, they don't talk about it all the time, but that's where they're parked. It's unfair, therefore, I I can't respect it. I can't believe it. It's not fair. And today, I want to talk about the issue of the fairness of Christianity. Now, there is an underlying question it happens for people who, who, who never hear that question. For people who never hear about Jesus, when, when you address that question, there's an underlying issue. And the underlying issue, that does not address the truth of Christianity. It, it addresses the fairness of Christianity. I think I completely botched that statement. So let me say that again. For people who struggle with, what about those people who never hear about Jesus? And, the, and that they're really not addressing the truth of Christianity with that question. They're addressing the fairness of Christianity. Some people who hear about Christianity would like to believe. They hear it and they would really, really like to believe. But their soul becomes locked up because of this fairness issue. They, they, they just can't get to the place that something might be both fair or unfair. Let's back up. It might be both unfair and true at the same time. And, you know, we make these assumptions that if something is fair, it has to be true, and vice versa. And it's really important that we sort out those differences because you, we, we, we're going to encounter that more and more uh, as we go. I, I want to just take a little bit of a sidetrack here because I don't want to go deep into this next subject. This next subject, you know, this morning I was up early um, reviewing the message. The message, I'd finished it earlier in the week. And I was up probably like 4.30 in the morning. And, and so I'm reviewing the message. And this, this where I'm going to take you now for just a minute, almost derailed me. I almost changed our whole message today. Um, so it's a little bit more than a rabbit trail. And I, we need to explore it sometime as a church. But I want to talk about the, the concept of spiritual ignorance. Does it really exist? 
Is it really possible that there are people out there who have, who have no knowledge of the Creator? Is that really possible? I, I guess I want to ask that question. And uh, so just, let's just take a little short side trip on that topic and come back, to, because it, it's germane to fairness. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 says this, Now may the, the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's an important scripture because it points out that you and I have three components, our spirit, our soul, and our body. Uh, our body is the obvious part. It's the physical being who we are, and it's, it's what we encounter, and um, it's what we bump into. It's the physical part of our being. Our soul is the um, emotions. It's our emotions. It's, it's, it's your intellect. It's your passions. It's the things that you, that you feel about. And your spirit is that part of your creative essence that connects with God. Okay, that's way, way overly summarized. Let me give it to you in simpler terms. Your body is your needy, childlike part. I need, I'm hungry, feed me. I'm tired, rest me. I hurt, stop the hurt. I like pleasure, give it to me. That's the body, okay? That's the, that's the neediest part of us. Then we get the soul. The soul is our emotions. That's like our adolescent. It's where all of our feelings are. It's we, you know, I, I don't want to do that. You know, it's all that kind of stuff that goes on, right? Our, our, our soul is our emotions and our spirit is the, um, is the more mature part of us. The spirit is the part of, our, 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 of, our, of us that's... The, that is mature. So we're, we, I would talk about the needy part, the emotional part, and the mature part. There's this battle that always goes on, right? Our intellect wants to always be in control. Sometimes our body takes charge. Sometimes our body just says, I don't care what you say, I'm going to sleep. You've kept me up all day. You've had me doing all kinds of things. Yeah, it's been fun and it's exciting, but I'm just done right now. Or I don't care what you say. I need some rest or feed me or whatever. Our body says that to us. And then sometimes the intellect says, no, 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 no. This is what I think. This is what I believe. You and I have a tendency that we want to evaluate everything. We want to filter everything through our intellect, through our soul. We want to verify whether things are true based on whether our soul agrees. And now there's this other part of our body that's our spirit. And it's, it's, it's a different, it's, there's, a, there's this battle that goes on. Sometimes there's this war that goes on between our soul and our spirit. You ever experienced that? Yeah, I know you've experienced it. So, so there's this, this, this thing going. So I, I, I want to ask this rhetorical question. Have this in the back of your mind as we take the next couple of minutes. Does God only connect with us through our soul? Are there times and are there ways that the Lord, that the Creator communicates and, and, and dialogues and nurtures and nudges you that have nothing to do with your physical body and nothing to do with your soul and everything to do with your spirit? Is it possible? Here's a couple of scriptures. Psalm 139.7. One of my favorite psalms, by the way. It, it, if you are ever at a place where you just need just the presence of the King, just go read Psalm 139. It's a great one. Uh, Psalm 139, verse 7 says, Where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? Now, that passage goes on and on. So this is an excerpt from a, a significant passage. The point is that there is no place you can get away from the Lord. Now, I don't know. I'm not trying to be facetious here, but he's not standing here in physical body right now. He's not, th- this scripture is not talking about him being here physically with me. There is something about the spirit that's going on here. 
Where can you go to get away from the Spirit? You can't. Okay, in Acts, there's a location in Acts. Remember, we're asking the question, what about people who never hear about God? Is it possible for people to truly be spiritually ignorant? I'm just asking the questions. In Acts, and I'm not going to give you the address, okay? Because if I give you the address, you'll go there now, and you'll be reading it, and I'll leave you, and I don't want you to do that. So here's a little bit of homework. Try and find this. If you haven't found it next week and you ask me, I'll tell you which chapter to look in it. But there's a place in Acts where there is a group of people discussed. And this group of people don't have the formal education to know the names, even the name of God. They don't know really a whole lot of details with their intellect. But in their spirit, the word of God says that they are worshiping the one true and living God. They're literally worshiping the true God. These are men and women of faith. This is after Jesus has come and died and rose again. And these are people of faith. They're truly worshiping the real living God. But they've never had anybody say Jesus to them. Interesting question. Some theologians believe that these people, had they died in that state, they would have gone to heaven. Could be. Listen, please don't start telling me I'm a heretic now. I'm not preaching multiple pathways to heaven aside from Jesus. We dealt with that last week, right? Right? (laughs) Okay. But the point I want to make is that how did those people know? How did they know how to praise and worship the one true and living God? How did they know? Their intellect did not know. Their physical bodies did not know. How did they know? Okay. Here's another one. Romans 1.20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. That's me. That's you understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. That seems so harsh and hard, but it's very pointed. This says that every created being knows about God. Every one of them. Ecclesiastes 3.11, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. People know that there is an ever ast- there, there, there is eternity. So they know there's a God. They know there's an eternity. They know. They may not be able to figure it all out, but they know. Deuteronomy 4.29, But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. Here's an, I mean, I could keep going. Here's another one, Revelation 3.20. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, I'll come in. Scripture after scripture after scripture that talks about a relationship between mankind that has nothing to do with our intellect filtering the process. Having said all that, is Christianity fair? No. (laughs) No, no, it's not fair. If by fair you mean that every person who ever hears the gospel will hear it in the same way, that if by fair you mean that every person who ever hears it will hear it with the same circumstances, without a prejudiced environment, with the same amount of time to think it through and to feel their way through it, with the same opportunities to not have other people. I mean, no, it's not fair. People are not going to hear the gospel in exactly the same way. It's just not fair. Uh, You know, that bugs me. It bugs me because it suggests something about the Lord's heart that I have misjudged. Because here's, here's another observation I'll make. The current system is not the original system. It's not. When Adam and Eve walked in the garden, things were fair 
in, the, in its purest form. They walked with the Lord. They heard the, the good news. They heard of the love of God, the opportunity and the access to the throne. It was equal and fair in every aspect. There was nothing that was favorite. There was nothing that was withheld. It was all given to them, all of it. And then they introduced something into the equation that God did not ever plan or desire. They changed the rules to the game. Fairness in its purest form was taken away from the human experience by, by the introduction of sin. Fair like that has never existed since and it's never going to again until the Lord reigns. But we look at this thing because fairness has vanished because we want to find this pure version of fair. We look at that and, we, and our soul says, God, if you're really up there, if Christianity is really true, if I'm really going to embrace you, then you got to do it fair. And that becomes this block. And what you and I need to understand is we need to know that there is no fairness like that that exists anymore in the world. That because human experience introduced something, the sin into the process, there, the, the, that fairness doesn't exist. And so God gets blamed over and over and over again for a problem that human, humankind introduced and initiated into the human experience. God gets blamed for that. Now, you might have said, hold on a second here, Terry. You, nice, nice job, but all of a sudden now you've told me that God gets, gets to dodge this bullet, this fairness bullet, by blaming two people I have never met who lived thousands of years ago, who made decisions that I had nothing to do with. I didn't participate in that. Why should I pay the price <laughs> for what they did? I'm sorry, no sale. That's just not fair. It's just not fair. When I was a little kid, before I learned grammar, which my parents taught me, kind of, you, you, you'll catch me on stuff, but they would correct my grammar, not because they didn't love me, but, to, but I would say, that's no fair. <laughs> I didn't even know the word not. That's no fair, you know. Kids do that. That's how you whine. You get, you, if you whine a lot, you can get your parents sometimes to give you what they wouldn't otherwise. That's no fair. So we'd say that. <laughs> and I think about this whole thing with Adam and Eve, and it's like, oh, that's no fair. It's no fair, God. But every one of us can testify about things, experiences, the pe- price that we've paid in life, sometimes because of choices that other people have made. Every one of you, if you think it through, you can come up with times and cases where you have paid the price, maybe you're paying it today, for a, pri- for a choice somebody else has made. It's just not fair. Some of you got health problems. You inherited something from your parents. Your heart doesn't have quite the strength that you ought to have for someone your age. It's not fair. Some of you got financial problems because you've been faithful and your spouse decided to run off with the X, Y, and Z, fill in the blank, and a financial household can crumble under those kind of circumstances, and you're paying this financial price, and it's not fair. This, there, there, there are lots of examples it's discouraging. I don't need to make you give you all the examples. But you can think of the times and the places in your own life, the price you're paying for things you didn't decide, and it's just not fair. But it's true. And the truth is that we can argue, we can argue the opposite side of that, this argument as well, about, about fairness, about we didn't pay the price. Here's an example. I, I make this up. I admit that this is hypothetical but I'll make it up anyway, and you'll, you'll buy into it, I think. Let's just say you're a carpenter, and you've agreed, um, you've been hired by some company to come in and do a bunch of carpentry work. 
and you've gone in and you've worked and you've worked and you've worked and you've worked. And by the time you get done, um, they owe you some money. Let's just make this interesting. They owe you $14,712. They owe you some money, you know. And they haven't paid you yet. And for some reason, they get delayed paying you. And now a month goes by and they still haven't paid you. And you call them up and all of a sudden, the person you've been talking to doesn't answer the phone as somebody else. Oh, well, the company got bought out. And the new company has bought this, this company that hired you. And you finally get a hold of someone who writes checks for them. And they say, well we're actually not going to pay you because we're not the ones that hired you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for whispering that, honey. That's not fair. Not a single one of you would say that. You would say to the person, hold on a minute. I don't care whether you made the decision or not. You bought that company. These people made a commitment to me. I've delivered on my part. You, you owe me the money, even though you didn't make the commitment. Wouldn't you agree? They owe you the money? Okay. I arrest my case. That would be fair, wouldn't it, I? So we can work the other side of that argument and say, you know what, Um, you owe me that money even though you didn't make that decision. You know, God put in the Garden of Eden, his original design was perfect, pure fairness. And we hold him accountable and it's not his fault. And now this issue of the decisions that Adam and Eve made comes back to haunt you and me. As Christians, we understand this. We understand that they made a decision and it impacts everybody ever since. The truth is, any one of us could have been substituted for Adam and Eve, and we probably would have done the same thing because it's in us. But we weren't there, so we'd just rather blame them. (laughs) Christianity is the fairest system of all in a world that's unfair. It's just plain unfair. And I think that what God came up with, given the circumstances, is pretty amazing. We'll talk about that a little bit. You and I have two persistent problems, though, in this issue about fairness. Two, two real persistent problems um, I w- that I want to explore. All of us have the um, tendency to overestimate our own ability to determine what's fair, and all of us have the tendency to underestimate the sin. But let's, let's talk about that first one. We overestimate our ability to determine what's fair. We... Um, we can't even decide in our own household sometimes what's fair. When, um, you know, when you're a child and you're going somewhere, if mom and dad are not both going, it's always the privilege to sit in the front seat. It used to be you know, when I grew up in a time before car seats, right? So to sit in the front seat was the deal. And you, you, know, you wanted to be in the front seat, and so you could call shotgun, but if your sister was bigger and stronger, that didn't make any difference. And, and it was not fair. Um, and there were just times that mom or dad had to say, hey, we're only making one trip and only one of you gets to sit in the front seat. Sorry, that's the way it goes. The world's not fair. I mean, my parents love me, but they just had to tell me sometimes, the world isn't fair. Don't expect everything to be equal all the time for fairness. It's, it's this, this, this attitude can then translate all the way from childhood to where we can finally get to the place where we'll say, God, you know, I've lived a few years and I got a pretty good idea and I'm going to tell you what fair needs to be. And you need to operate the universe like I tell you. And by the way, if you don't do that, I'm just going to decide you don't exist. (laughs) Sounds silly when you stand up here and say it, but you know that there are people at your office that believe it, or that live it at least. I don't know if they believe it or not, but they live it. Um, So as a wise parent, 
and you're trying to teach your kids how to operate as fairly as you can, you say, hey, Terry, share that cookie with your sister, Lisa. I have a sister named Lisa. She's next in age next to me, or Chris, who's here. Okay, so I take the cookie and I break off a little piece, hand it to my sister, and I keep the big chunk, right? Works for once or twice. Pretty soon they figure it out. Some figure it out sooner than others. And they say, that's not fair, you know? And you don't want them to break the piece off. And so your mother, being like Solomon, says, here, Terry, here's a plate, here's a cookie. Cut it in half. Christy gets to pick which half. Okay? Now, all of a sudden, the approach to dividing the cookie becomes completely different. I mean, I mean, get out a microscope. <laughs> you know, because I don't want to be stuck with a smaller half. So these are going to be so close that I'll be accepting. And so we learn to avoid the fairness problem when it's going to ha- affect us more. <laughs> we divide it so carefully. I, I used to work at this large corporation. This goes back a number of years ago. And we would have this exercise once a year where um, the amount of money sometimes in big corporations that, that gets dealt with is amazing. And as a manager, um, my responsibilities was to oversee a lot of people and a lot of other management people. And um, we would give bonuses to management people, performance-based bonuses. So how do you decide who gets how much money? Here's how the process would work. Somewhere up the food chain, they would say, for this organization, here's your pot of money. And you might have, in our case, it was probably 20 or 25 management people who were going to share in this pot of gold. And I would get together a group of people who oversaw this team, and our role was to say, this person deserves this amount, this person deserves this amount, this person deserves this amount. Now, a typical bonus, annual bonus for people um, in today's dollars, what we're talking about is maybe twenty, twenty-five thousand dollars. Okay, average. We're talking a lot of money here, right? Okay. Now, can you imagine the conversations that were going on in that room? Well, there was favoritism. There were commitments, maybe some promises that had been made. Maybe I don't know. I, you never know what's in the heart of a group of people. But to get everybody to agree on what's fair was mayhem. I mean, I'm not saying that it was an evil process. It was a competitive process, and it was common, and and I'm sure it was happening somewhere up the food chain for me, and I was the benefactor of it. And I enjoyed it when bonus time came. But, but But those moments for a group of people to sit and try to assess what's fair and divide what kind of blessing is given, here's another another example. I, I try not to talk about my poodles too much because... I, think, I want you to think highly of me, but the truth is we've got two dogs at home and they're both poodles. We have a big poodle and a little poodle. And somehow they have conned us to thinking that any time we leave, we have to give them a dog cookie, right? And I think it's your fault, frankly, because you've pampered them and spoiled them too much, honey. It's what? It's guilt. You feel guilty you've abandoned your poodles. Yeah, I get that. Um, so we have one big poodle, and she's um, svelte and trim. She's a standard poodle. Then we have a miniature poodle who's you know, kind of starting to pack it on a little bit. <laughs> and, um, but she's dominant. She's a little bit older, and they're both good, friendly dogs, but they know the cookie's coming. Now, I, I'm not giving them both. These cookies are huge. They don't need a big, big, you know, I don't want them to live off of cookies, even though I do. I don't want my dogs to live that way. <laughs> 
So um, I take one big cookie and I break it in half to give it to the poodles. Now, I choose, you know, you know what a dog cookie is shaped like? It's shaped like a bone. You know, it's big on the end and narrow and then big on the end, right? I choose to break it off way uneven. I break one little tip off the end to give to the little fat dog. And the big skinny dog's going to get the rest of it, right? And I break it off. I, I hide it from them. Like, they can't, I don't want her to know I'm not breaking it. So I hide it from her. I, I got to stop doing that. That's silly. Okay, so, so I, break the, I break the end off, and I know that they're not even. And I say to the dog, sit, um, be gentle, because I want all my fingers back. And I give Muffy, I can't believe that's <laughs> Muffy is the little one. I give Muffy the little tiny piece, and I give Molly the big... Come on, that's cute. Muffy and Molly. Okay. <laughs> I, so I break them off, and I give them to these, these two pieces. Now, these two dogs... Okay, my biggest concern isn't fairness. My biggest concern is getting my fingers back, right? But they're good, and they take them, and they go separate directions, and they eat their cookies. They're both genuinely excited to get my cookie. They don't care. Neither one of them cares how big it is. All they know is that blessing is being dispensed. As far as they're concerned, the God of Poodle Universe has bestowed another blessing. Okay? Listen, you, you get my heart on that, right? Because I am the God of their Poodle Universe. <laughs> so I give them these cookies, and they're excited. The issue of unfairness doesn't enter their hearts. They have no idea. And they've both been blessed. Neither one of them deserves a cookie. Neither one of them deserves it. But they get this cookie. Fairness is not an issue for them. How do you and I get to this place where we look up at heaven and we go, God, that's just not fair. I want my cookie. You know, we say... um, we just way, way, way overestimate our ability to determine what's fair. The second persistent problem that we have is we underestimate the significance of our sin. You know, um, I, I, I'm, I'm sitting with people sometimes in counseling, and there's some sort of disagreement. That's nicely way of nice way of putting it. It's okay. It's all right. It's embarrassing, I know. I'll just act like it didn't happen, okay? <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> so... So I'm in a meeting, and there's disagreement. And sometimes there's so much acrimony that I've got to meet with them separately first to get things you know, down to a certain volume level. That, you know. And sometimes people, we get really upset, and we're talking, we're sharing our side. And I'll have this, this person will make this statement. I know I'm not perfect, but... First off, I already knew they weren't perfect. They didn't, you, don't, you, don't have to, you don't have to tell people that you're not perfect because they already got that figured out. But... But when those words come out of our mouth, it's like a disclaimer to the fact that I know I bring problems to the table, but let's minimize that for now and let's talk about that person's problems. We have this tendency to do that. We have this tendency to uh, underestimate the significance of our own sin. And when we get there, we can get to this, this I'm not so bad way of thinking gets us to this conclusion with heaven where we say, God, you know, you owe me a break. You owe me something, God. We, we way, way, way underestimate the significance of our sins. Christians like to, you know, we, we know that God is holy. We know that he's perfect. We know that he is love. We know all these things. And we expect fairness to come in the same kind of a package. And then we kind of get these attitudes. I, I, I think 
I think when I get a little bit of an attitude, when I, when, when God, when, when I say to God, you know, I deserve a cookie, it just never makes my soul feel right. I mean, I mean, I was considering a couple of things. There's, a, there's, a, there's here's something that I, I read this in my devotions last week. Um, I was at the point in um, in the book of Mark where Jesus is being captured, and it's he's in the garden. It's nighttime, and the these armed people are coming to capture him and they want to make sure they're getting the right guy and, and Judas has betrayed him and they ask this question are you Jesus the Christ? They ask something like that. I'm paraphrasing. Scripture says he answers he said I am he and then it says this they stepped back and fell to the ground. They fell to the ground. I, I, I marvel at that. I marvel, not that they fell to the ground, but that they got up. I mean, I mean, wouldn't you think a, gr- a band of people goes to arrest God, arrest him. They say, are you really, you know, are you he? And he says, I'm he. And, and something, I think, I don't know what happened there. I think something of the glory of God, just enough leaked out, it put them down on the ground. Didn't hurt them, but put them on the ground. You'd think they would look at each other and go, uh, what just happened? Did, 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 what did I miss? You'd think they would figure that out. But no, they get up and they arrest the guy. Okay, so I think of that moment. And then I think there's this also, a couple of places late in the book of Revelation, like 18, 19, 20, 21, 22. How's that for being specific? Um, <laughs> two times John is having this whole picture painted before him. And this angel is, is kind of narrating and leading him, him through it. And two times, at least two times, he falls to the ground and starts worshiping. And the angel corrects him and says, stop that. I'm a servant just like you. But my point is this. John was seeing something of the glory of God that was so profound and powerful that he, that he was on the ground. And when I think about those moments, and I think about saying to God, you know what, you owe me a cookie. <laughs> I think that my, I have this, this persistent problem that I can way underestimate the significance of my sin. And it affects my ability. Once we decide that we're going to tell God a thing or two or that we're going to withhold our belief because he's not fair, we're way, way, way um, overestimating our ability to determine what's fair and way underestimating um, the sin in our life. And we can get wedged up on that question of fairness. Here's the real underlying question. Can something be both true and unfair at the same time? You know, if... um, if that's the case, a person that decides to park themselves there will never, ever discover the glory of God. And their eternity is at stake. Romans 5.8 says, but God has shown us how much he loves us. It was while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. I think about the times that I, um, you know, you know, f- fairness is way overblown. <laughs> I mean, I think about the times that I've absolutely known what I was supposed to do or what I was not supposed to do. I've known it and I've decided to wander past that line. I've decided to sin intentionally. You know, that, especially for for people like us, those moments ultimately lead us to this place where we don't want God to be fair. All of a sudden, fairness is way overrated 
Because if we want God to be fair, then we throw out things like grace. We throw out things like mercy. We throw out things like forgiveness. I'm frankly very glad Christianity is not fair. It's just, but I'm so glad that it's not fair. You know, we call, the, we call the message the gospel, it's the good news. The word gospel means good news. And it's good news because it's not about fair. It's good news because it's about grace. It's about mercy. It's the good news. It's the fairest thing possible in an unfair world because everybody's welcome, everybody gets into heaven the same way, and everybody can meet the requirements. No, it's not fair but can God's system become any fairer than it is? I mean, we talked about that last week. All he wants is for you and me is to put faith in his son. That's all he wants. It's like that, that, that thief on the cross. Jesus looked over and said, oh, that's all I was looking for. You'll be there. You're coming with me. What a moment. I want to um, pray over you and pray with you. I think I know that, that probably most of you, if not all of you, have opened your heart to the Lord before. If you haven't, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that this morning, but probably most of you have. And in, in sharing a message like this, which is really a salvation message um, and a fairness message, I don't want this just to become intellectual fodder for you. I want this to become power for you. I want this to, to, to stir up something of strength, of character in you because when you encounter people who are truly locked up over this issue, the point isn't for you to become judgmental or to become smug, not that you would be, but the point is for you to be able to share your love with them in such a way that you can lead them a place that they can't get to on their own. I want to pray. I want to pray for you now. So would you close your eyes? And uh, first thing I want to do is speak to anybody here who has never decided to abandon fairness in favor of grace. You've been waiting for signs to show you that God's ways are fair. And instead now you know that what you want is grace and mercy. You've never opened your heart to the Lord before. This is the moment. So while eyes are closed and while we're praying, I would say this. If you've never opened your heart to the Lord, do it right now. The word says that if you believe with your heart and confess with your mouth, you'll be saved. That doesn't mean you have to tell people. It just means that you have to, you, you have to say something. It means that you have to tell, tell someone or communicate with someone that you're opening your heart to the Lord. So I'm looking across the room. If you've never opened your heart but you want to do that today, would you just look up at me and just wave your hand and that's all I'm going to do is just agree with you. Is that why you're looking at me? You want to open your heart to the Lord? Okay. Others? Okay. Lord, thank you, God, for the fact that even though you originally engineered the heavens and the earth to be perfectly and purely fair, that, Lord, you had a plan that's more than a backup plan. It's a plan of love and mercy and grace. I want to thank you, Lord, that you deal justly with your children, but fairness isn't in your heart because what's in your heart is grace and mercy. Thank you, Lord. Your way is so much better. We confess it. We agree with it. I pray, Lord, that that kind of mercy and grace would be what we're known for. Help us as a people today and tomorrow at work or at school or wherever we might find ourselves, in the grocery store or in the line behind, waiting for someone who maybe isn't as good at their job as they should be and we become impatient. Lord, help there to be something of mercy and grace in our hearts, not fairness. Not that thing where we got to leap from line to line to make sure we get our, our, the fastest way out because we've earned our place. But instead, Lord, something of mercy and grace. 
I pray, Lord, that that would be a mark upon us, that the people of this church family, at least, would be known because they're full of mercy and grace. Let that be a part of our fellowship, Lord, I pray. We ask for it to be a mark upon us. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen.